Just a few real quick other additional announcements. One is you can be praying for our student ministry, our high school ministry that's currently up at Mount Baker uh, going through their snow blast weekend. And so I think they had just a little bit of snow over the weekend. And so they're going to be traveling back today. So if you can be praying for all of our high school students that not only would they be physically safe, uh, the report I got is like no one's dead yet. So that's good. And, uh, but uh, then also that there, there would be no spiritual death taking place, right? We really want these kids to really know who Jesus is, to sing about his goodness, and, uh, and to find that he is all that they need. And so if you can be praying for our student ministry as they travel back from Snow Blast, that would be wonderful. And then also, uh, we're privileged to have Andy and Rachel Meisinger. Um, you're here somewhere. There you are. Yeah, I saw you in our equipping hours, so we're so grateful that you're here, missionaries that we support, and they have a little table in the back that they'd love to get some information into your mind and hand uh, about their ministry, so if you want to touch base, you'll be in the back after the service, right? So thank you so much for taking time to be here with us this Sunday morning, and uh, we're grateful for all of those things. Um, uh, Warren, uh, Elder Warren Reinhardt, who led us in worship today, mentioned that we're still continuing on in the book of Mark, and uh, we were in this passage before, so I'd invite you to turn to Mark chapter 2 today, and we're going to finish the passage. Last time we were in the passage, we did make some pointed applications while we were there. Uh, we talked about how faith without works is dead. We noticed some people in the text that weren't going to let anything stand in between the way of these guys and the object of their faith. You know, they tore a hole in the roof. I don't know what you did to demonstrate your faith this last week, but these guys, you know, they tore a hole in a roof. They didn't care about what other people thought of their actions. They only cared about what Jesus was capable of doing if they demonstrated faith in his life-changing abilities. That's all they cared about. And we talked about this last time when we looked at this passage. Sometimes we're hindered in expressing great acts of faith in God because we are too worried about how others might perceive us. To that we really said, who cares what people think about your expressions of faith if they're offered to God and they're pleasing to him? The only person that cares is you and you're caring about the wrong thing. We talked pretty specifically about that last time. And we also talked about the importance of allowing our homes to be inconvenienced for the use of ministry, even on our off days. These people were crowding around the home of somebody, whether it was Jesus or one of the disciples, we don't necessarily know, but these are during the off hours and people are crowding him out and he's still willing to be inconvenienced to meet the needs. And we talked about those primary application points, you know, for the last couple weeks. Have you been opening up your house to your in-laws and neighbors and those types of things with your kids being out of school? So hopefully you've been able to demonstrate your faith by being hospitable over the last few weeks. But those are really all secondary applications to the passage, and today we're going to finish off the passage, and we're going to try to determine why did Mark decide to put this account into his telling of a story of Jesus. And so let's go ahead and look at Mark chapter 2, and we'll finish this preaching segment today. Mark chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. 
And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why, 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 does, why, does, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but, but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. May the Lord add his blessing to those who read here and then seek to apply this word today. Let's pray. Oh God, you're good. This is a fantastic passage. Oh, and it's taken us two different preaching occasions to be able to get through all of it. And I'm sure we're not going to see all of it today. But what we do see, I pray that we would be able to respond in faith like these men. And that we too would say, we've never seen anything like this. Because what we're seeing is grace in action. And faith being rewarded. So God, I pray that you would um, allow us to learn from your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I hope you see how amazing this passage of scripture is. This, is, this, is, this occurred in a land far away, but it's not a fairy tale. This really did happen on the planet. This is good stuff. So let's work our way through this and add to the observations we made last time a few weeks back. Look at verse five. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. First of all, notice this. Faith is invisible, but faith is evidenced by action. These men put their belief in Jesus on display so that it could be observed by him. Noticing and witnessing these people's behavior is what triggered Jesus' eyes to detect their faith. And then he responded to their conviction concerning his ability. He saw their faith. Actions are how faith can be seen. So let's just quickly think on this for a moment in a few categorical ways, especially at the beginning of a year. Does Jesus ever observe you opening up your Bible outside of a Bible study or outside of a Sunday morning gathering 
Does he consistently observe you diving inside the rich word because you know that there's blessings within his pages? Does he ever hear your audible voice as you cry out and talk with him as you make your way through a day or through a month or through this whole year? This is something that I've been challenged by historically and once again over the last few weeks. My default mode as I pray is to pray to God in my mind. But you know what? I am so easily distracted in my thinking. I don't know about you, but I am. And if it were possible for an omniscient God to be confused, I'm sure that he would be if the only information that I was communicating to him was via my distracted and disjointed thoughts, right? So it's helped me to audibly speak my prayers to him and even pray prayers of other people's at times. So I'm just opening up the Psalms and just letting the Psalms say the words that my heart wants to say or using other resources? Does God see your faith by you opening up the scriptures by crying out to him? First Peter chapter three, verse 12, listen to this. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears open to their prayers. Here's a question, what are eyes used for? What is it, what are they used for? Seeing things, thank you. What are ears used for? Hearing, yeah, detecting sound waves. So I'm fully aware of the literary technique of using anthropomorphic language when the biblical authors describe God so we can kind of understand him. But I really do think that God watches us, observes us, and not only that, but he can hear us. Does Jesus hear you and watch you pour over this rich word on a daily basis, expecting a blessing? And hear your audible voice cry out to him. Maybe even early in the morning as it says in Psalm 5. Does Jesus, can Jesus observe those things in your life? Think about this. Does Jesus consistently see you being cheerfully charitable with your money? Does he ever see you out of the abundance of your giving, right, out of your abundance, give according to your means or even beyond them? We're gonna get to Mark chapter 12 eventually. We'll make it there, I promise. But just for now, let's look at this. This is so interesting to me. Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Look at this. When I... When I went back to study this passage, I, I laughed in my mind. Jesus positions himself opposite the treasury. Why? So that he could be in optimal position to watch people give their money. Does that, that's crazy in my mind, right? He puts himself in a position where he can like, okay, I know there's an offering box over there. I'm going to sit here so I can watch. I can watch. 
He wants to be able to observe people's faith and their generosity by their actions. So we're not going to do that at FCC. Like, we're not going to position, like, these guys and, like, watch the offering box, right? <laughs> That'd be super weird. But we do want to let you know that our membership did approve a 5% increase to our budget this last year. And we need God to work in all of our hearts to be cheerfully charitable to do what we want to do for the kingdom, So these are just a few things for us to consider. Is your faith seen? The text says, when Jesus saw their faith. Now we define faith like this. Sometimes that's an ambiguous idea. What do you mean, Sean, when you say faith? Well, faith is believing the word of God and acting on it. No matter how you feel, Knowing that God promises a good result. It's saying, okay, God, I'm going to believe what your word says, and then I'm going to act on it. I don't care how I feel about what your word says, because I know that you're promising a good result if I obey. That's what we mean by faith. So these guys in the text are demonstrating their faith in a very observable way, right? First they come to Jesus, then they carry this guy, right? They go up the stairs, they tear a hole in the roof, they lower the man down. They're coming to get this guy's legs fixed. And surprisingly, Jesus seems to be oblivious and irrelevant to their need by saying something that's shocking and puzzling. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And you're like, what? Why? That's not what is concerning these guys right now. That's not the reason these guys did the hard work of getting up on the roof and then lowering the man down after tearing a hole in the roof. That's not why he came. This guy needs a physical healing. And Jesus knows this. But he he wants to reward their faith and demonstrate his authority by showcasing who he really is at the same time. He's not just some rogue, random miracle worker. He's much, much more than that. And so this is what he says. Look, son, son, your sins are forgiven. This is baffling. He addresses this guy before him as son. He doesn't say, hey, brother, hey, fellow Israelite. He addresses the paralytic as son. And I think what we see here is tender relational authority here. He's speaking in a very tender way on behalf of God as if he himself was God. He was saying things that only God could say. We know that Jesus isn't the Father, but in this dialogue, Jesus seems to be speaking on behalf of the Father. By addressing the paralytic as son, Jesus was revealing the Father's heart to those who are in need. Remember Jesus' encounter with Philip in John 14. 
Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Like, we've been around three years. I've been training and teaching you. And he says, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? This, the Father is evidencing himself in his heart in my incarnation. Early on in John's gospel, we hear Jesus saying, I and the Father are one. And here in our text today, we hear Jesus calling this man son. And then he follows that up. As shocking as that son comment is, he follows that up with something that no one thought any man would ever, ever say. The next words coming out of Jesus' mouth were words that only God could say. He says, your sins are forgiven. What? What are you talking about? The leaders no doubt gasped at this pronouncement pouring out of the mouth of Jesus because what Jesus just said sounded a lot like the seven-time repeated phrase we find in the book of Leviticus. We see this seven times. So the priest shall make atonement for him and for his sins and he shall be forgiven. We see that seven times in Leviticus, and Jesus just said that. So the people are sitting there hearing Jesus say that, and they're thinking in their minds, yeah, we we know there's a way for sins to be forgiven, but it's not by you saying so. And look at what Mark tells us next. Verse six. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So here we see some skeptical, silent questioning of who Jesus is. Some of the religious leaders' hearts started to, in that moment, rage within them. And so their hearts start to ask this accusatory question, beginning with the word, why? The why question is one that's asked so often when we don't see the end of a matter, or when someone else's decisions that they have made doesn't make any sense to us. Why would you do this? Why would you do that? That What you did doesn't make any logical sense to me, We say this sometimes when we sense incompetence in other people, right? Why? A similar vernacular would be, what were you thinking? And what we mean by that is like, clearly you're not, right? The why, what were you thinking question is what these professional religious scribes who were well acquainted with the Old Testament laws concerning forgiveness were asking in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? Like what? Like God. Why is this man talking as if he is God? Humans can't and shouldn't speak like that. This guy, whatever he is, he's also delusional. Only God can forgive sins. What possible redemptive authority can this man have? There's a whole system in place 
forgetting forgiveness. This man seems to be bypassing everything that took place in the tabernacle, later on in the temple. What about the entire book of Leviticus? There's a prescribed method that you seem to be oblivious to, Jesus. Why are you so dismissive of what everyone else knows to be true? And on top of that, this man didn't come to get his sins forgiven. What this man needs is a physical healing, Jesus. So not only are you irreverent, you're also irrelevant. And Jesus, I love this, Jesus is perceptive enough to sense their internal offense and he graciously meets them right where they're at. This is amazing. Look at verse eight. And immediately, immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? He sees, he, he perceives that these leaders are struggling. And so he questions them about their struggle. He doesn't just say, hey, look, you jerks, get your act together, I'm God here. He doesn't do that. He says, why? Why do you question these things in your heart? I see, I can sense that you're questioning who I am. Why? He doesn't just leave them in their questioned state. He is going to answer their silent questions by asking them a question and follow that up by providing verifiable public evidence of what he said was true. <laughs> He's so kind. He's so gracious to those who are opposed to him and offended by him. And he simultaneously, clearly and cleverly avoids being indicted for the charge of blasphemy by asking an out loud question to them. He addresses their concerns and he sets himself up to publicly demonstrate who he is. He's brilliant. And so to them he says, verse nine, he asks them a question, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. It's brilliant. He answers their question with a counter question. Jesus senses their disapproval and was able to point out their disapproval to everyone in a public way in that packed house. So, which is easier? Is it easier to make a theological pronouncement about the forgiveness of sins? Or is it easier to tell a man whose legs don't work to get up, pick up his mat, use those non-working legs to walk through a door of the pack house instead of being extracted via the tired arms of his friends on the roof? Neither of them, to me, seems very easy. Both actually seem impossible. It's relatively easy to mutter a few words, your sins are forgiven, Anyone can say that. Now there's consequences for saying stuff like that. But really anyone can say those words, but how would anyone know if what was said actually worked? How would that be verifiable? 
And now it's also very easy to say the words, rise, take up your bed, and walk. We could probably, if we practice, we could probably all do that in unison, right? You can say that, but can you pull it off? To say it was one thing, to actually do it is quite another. But here's the thing. If Jesus can perform this bodily, physical miracle in front of the massive crowd of onlookers, then he would be claiming to be in possession of the authority to perform the spiritual miracle as well without being indicted by the religious leaders for the charge of blasphemy. So with all this in mind, Jesus in a split second immediately keeps his wits about him and then is able to provide undeniable empirical proof for our consideration and hopefully our amazement. He continues to speak and he says this, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. If the crowd was perplexed by the first statement Jesus made, son, your sins are forgiven, I can't even imagine the question marks that were swirling about their heads after he made this one. Like this is really crazy talk right now. If this guy doesn't get up and pick up his mat, walk out of the building with it, these religious leaders would need to pick up stones and publicly pummel Jesus to death. The line is drawn deeply in the sand and Jesus just stepped over it. Plus, he's referring to himself as the son of man. The famous son of man figure of Daniel chapter seven who is prophesied to receive authority and a future kingdom like no other kingdom ever before. And they think, you think that you're the fulfillment of the Daniel seven son of man? This is super high stakes. The tension was thick. And everyone in that packed house waited with bated breath to see if this paralyzed man would obey this humanly impossible command of Jesus. And then this paralyzed man publicly acts on the commands of Jesus, even though it probably didn't make sense to him. Are my sins forgiven or are my legs healed or both? I want my legs to be healed, but being, having my sins being forgiven, that'd be quite a perk too. And this is what Mark says next. And he rose, <laughs> and he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I imagine kind of four types of short, curt responses. Kind of like, <laughs> huh? <sighs> and <gasps> kind of like the, the shocked and elated, <laughs> or maybe the shocked and the curious, Huh? Maybe the exhale, like, oh, 
I thought we were just going to have to publicly stone somebody. That'd be ugly. I'm just grateful for the, and for the relief of not having to see someone killed. And some of them were like, <gasps> what manner of man is this? They're amazed and they glorify God by their amazement. And the phrase, I love the phrase, we never saw anything like this. It's emphasized in the original language. You know, to try to translate it into our modern vernacular, it would sound something like this. We've never, ever, never, ever, under any circumstance ever, witnessed anything ever remotely close to what we have just witnessed. Ever. We're amazed. And God is to be praised. In fact... We think that God might be standing right here before us saying things and implying things that the Old Testament priests of old merely alluded to. Because Jesus pronounced divine forgiveness by his own authority. He's bypassing the temple because he himself was the new temple. He himself was the place where deity dwelt and where a sacrifice to atone for sins would take place. And that's pretty hard to dispute. When the man who was once lying on a mat and lowered down from the ceiling takes up that mat and he starts walking in a way that he was never able to walk before in order to go home. The forgiveness of sins wasn't the perk to the healed legs. The healed legs were the perk to the forgiveness of sins. Jesus used his divine authority to take back that which the counterfeit kingdom of chaos and distorter had stolen from this man and he restored part of his humanity back to him. Do you see this story? This is what Jesus does for those of us who express faith in him. He heals us. And then he tells us to walk in a whole new way like we've never walked before as we head to our eternal home. Do you see the goodness of Jesus? That's the story. And now let me share with you why I think the story is here. Get this. This is the take home. Here we have people who are skeptical of what Jesus says. They're skeptical of who Jesus says he is. They question him. They question his abilities to do that which he said he could do. And we also have people who aren't letting anything stand in the way of what they think Jesus is capable of doing. They're willing to tear a hole in a roof to get to him. So here's the thing. Which set of characters do you resonate with? Are you prone to doubt? Are you prone to question Jesus' ability? Do you think that his arm is too short to save you? Do you think he can really make a difference in your life? If you think that way, you won't come to him. Why would you? Or are you willing to pursue him with reckless abandon? Like there's no crowd, there's no barrier, there's no doubt, there's no unbelief. There's no past sin. There's no current sin. There's no future sin. 
that will keep you from expressing your faith and his ability to make a difference in your life as you head home. Here's the beauty of the story. He makes himself available to both sets of characters. The proof of who he really is was on display for who in the house? Everyone. Everyone saw this. To the skeptics, Jesus met them right where they were at, and then he demonstrates in an undeniable way that he really is who he says he is. What more proof would you want? A paralyzed man walked home. And for those expressing faith, they get a deeper healing that they really need. They get their offenses against God forgiven. They are made right before the eyes of their creator. And then he begins a restoration process that will be complete upon seeing him face to face when they're finally in heaven, their true home. So for those who express faith and come to him, he actually does have the power to change your life. To both sets of characters, Jesus makes himself available. How amazing is that? It's amazing. Whether you're a skeptic or a faith expresser, he's still offering. He's come, come, observe what I can do. I don't know about you, but I admitted this already. I so often play the skeptic. So often I question his ability to save me, mostly honestly from myself and my own foolishness. But Jesus graciously meets me right where I'm at and he communes with me and he simply asks me to believe what he is more than capable and willing to do for me. That's the gospel. And it's on display in this beautiful passage of scripture that Mark records for us. And what I say to that is, may Jesus Christ be praised. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we see the gospel on display in these 12 short verses for people that are expressing their faith and not letting anything be a barrier between them and you. You rewarded that faith. You blessed it. And you healed, you brought, you brought about a healing, an initial healing, and then enabled this gentleman to walk in a whole new way. And you told, you, you told him to go home. That's what we're doing here as we express our faith in you. You have healed us. You have enabled us to walk in a whole new way as we head to our eternal home. And yet, so often we play skeptical. We question, yeah, I don't think I can really change. And we let so many barriers stand between us and our belief. We live in unbelief so often. And God, I gotta pray that wouldn't be the case this new year. God, I pray that you would change me. God, I'm crying out to you on this first Sunday of this year. God, I cry out and say, God, would you do that new work in me this year that you desire to do? God, I pray that you would observe my faith as I put my faith into actions in so many different ways this year. I pray for all of our people here that they would do the same. But God, ultimately, God, I pray that we would just be amazed and glorify you. As we see who you really are in this passage of Scripture, my heart is just drawn to say that you are a wonderful, beautiful Savior, that you're a great Savior, a friend for sinners, and a lover of our souls. 
God, I pray that as we offer this one final song of praise to you, that you would hear it, and that you would hear the hallelujah, our praise to you, and that you'd be glorified in our midst. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.